Welcome to the Sydney Ideas podcast series. Sydney Ideas is the University of Sydney's public events program, providing you with the opportunity to hear leading thinkers from our university and around the world. Enjoy the podcast. Hello and welcome. My name is Natalie Pearson and I work here at the university at the Sydney Southeast Asia Centre. I'm very pleased to welcome you to this special event on Who Controls the Internet, hosted by Sydney Ideas and the Sydney Southeast Asia Centre. We are gathering tonight on Gadigal land, and to begin I would like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of this land. Driving our discussion tonight is the idea of innovation and knowledge production, and it is the Gadigal people who were the original innovators of deep knowledge about the country on which we meet. I pay my respects to their elders past, present and emerging. Tonight's event is the precursor to the ASEAN Forum tomorrow, which focuses on the digital revolution in Southeast Asia. We will be looking at technological innovations and development, at the social impact of the digital revolution, and asking the question of who and what is being left behind. These are topical issues in Southeast Asia and around the world. Here at the University of Sydney, for example, we've just announced a new initiative that uses artificial intelligence to develop a customised digital health program to reduce heart attacks. For now, though, it is my pleasure to introduce you to tonight's panellists, all of whom will be speaking at the ASEAN Forum tomorrow. But here tonight, they're going to address this question of who controls the internet. So on your right is Mr. Bart Hogevin, and Bart is from the Australian Strategic Policy Institute in Canberra, where he is head of cyber capacity building at the International Cyber Policy Centre. He supports international and regional mechanisms to enhance cyber stability with governments and NGOs across the Asia Pacific. To Bart's right is Dr. Aim Sinpeng. She's a lecturer in comparative politics here at the University of Sydney. Her research looks at relationships between digital media, political participation, and political regimes in Southeast Asia. She's just been awarded funding by Facebook to investigate how better to regulate online hate speech in Southeast Asia. Dr. Damien Spry is a lecturer in media and communications at the University of South Australia. His research focuses on social media impacts on politics and diplomacy. He has developed the Facebooking Diplomacy Database and is currently working on the Twitter Diplomacy Database with the Digital Media Research Centre at the Queensland University of Technology. Tonight's event will be chaired by Professor Michelle Ford, Professor of Southeast Asian Studies and Director of the Sydney Southeast Asia Centre. Her research focuses primarily on Southeast Asian labour movements, labour migration and trade union aid, and she has also published on the gig economy and digital rights. Michelle will lead our, pan our panellists through what promises to be a fascinating and possibly somewhat alarming discussion. Thank you. Okay, so who controls the internet? Just before we start, I'm going to ask Damien to give us a very, very brief primer on the techno-political world that we're facing today. 
Yeah, so what is the internet? It's a very long, um, you can answer this in a very long way. I'm going to keep it really short. When um, I like to think about the internet, I try to remember there's three things. There's the technology, both hard and soft. So there's all like the wires and Wi-Fi routers, but increasingly that's also our telephones and our watches and our fridges and our cars and our smart speakers and uh, the things that control our smart homes and so forth. Um, they're the chips in our credit cards. Um, they're our... Um, you know, there's increasingly even chips in our bodies. So that's part of the hardware. There's the software which carries the information and converts the information from one thing to the next. So that's websites, social media platforms, it's algorithms, it's uh, analytical programs that deal with databases to crunch the numbers, to crunch the information, to uh, do those sorts of things. Then there's the content, which is everything that we read and see and hear and listen to. And content's interesting because um, we produce quite a lot of it, um, but not all of it. Um, it's increasingly diverse. Um, and then the last uh, aspect of the internet, which is often forgotten, is the people. So when we talk about the internet, we have to remember that um, we are part of the internet whenever we knowingly or otherwise contribute content to the internet. So knowingly, whenever we send a message, um, post on an internet forum, otherwise there's so many forms of information, content data, if you like, which we are at this moment contributing to um, or providing to people who are gathering this data, doing stuff with this data and making decisions about how they're going to use that data to try and impact upon our lives. The other side of it is the people who make those decisions. And often when we talk about technology, we forget that there are people behind uh, the technologies which decide how they're going to use the technology in which ways. I'll leave it there. And we're going to start with those people who make the decisions. What do we actually need to know about the role of big companies, but also states in the operation of the internet? But can I start with you? Yeah, sure. Thanks for, uh, for the invitation. Great to see so many people turn up about this very important question. And of course, I should start with noting that there is a fundamental thing wrong in just the question alone, and that's the word control. Um, because if you look at states, and if you look, for instance, uh, about the position of the Australian government, they will say there is no control. We talk about the governance of the internet. Well, that aside, uh, if you look at the role of the state, when you talk about governance, you talk about governments. Um, so the role of the state here, I think, is kind of threefold. Um, one, there is the state as consumer, consumer of internet products, of networks, of just a consumer like all of us uh, in the digital domain. Then there is the role of the government as a regulator, um, and I think we can all imagine what that implies. And there is the role of the government as an active, an active part, an active actor in the digital domain, both from a defensive side, but definitely also uh, from an offensive side. I'll probably talk about that a little bit more. Well, I'd actually like to pull you out a bit on this immediately. If we think of Hong Kong and the recent events, clearly the Chinese state's taking quite an offensive approach to its use of the internet as a tactical tool. Have you got some observations on how states have used it in that offensive way? Well, I think what, what we've seen mature over the last couple of years is that states have come to recognise, let's say, the, the internet and the cyber domain as what they call a fifth domain of warfare. Now, don't take warfare too literally. That means the fifth domain of military operations or offensive operations. So I think all big cyber powers, that includes China, that includes Russia, but definitely also the US and definitely also Australia, have included cyber as, as a domain of projecting power, projecting influence. Um, so it's an integral part of any kind of operation. 
hopefully driven by less political means, but definitely as part of operation, whether that's by the military, by the police or other agencies operating in the species of state. And definitely also China is very active in that. Now, we'll come back to the question of states later, as Bart suggested. But, Jamie, could you tell us a bit more about the role of big companies here? Again, I have to be kind of, <clears throat> excuse me, quite brief because there's a, a long answer to this and I'll try to keep it quite succinct. In or about 2002, after the first tech bubble, bubble, the big internet companies, including Google, decided that they couldn't just be inventing interesting things that they needed to really start making money and they cottoned onto a way to do that, which is by uh, gathering a data combining that data in interesting ways to make predictive models about our behaviour. Facebook was the next to realise that they could make a lot of money out of this, and both those companies and many others have succeeded in using that basic model. Um, it's not only the social media platforms who are quite familiar to lots of people, but um, there are data brokers who, some of them are billion dollar companies themselves. Um, so Axiom, for example, is one that's pretty active here in Australia. There are companies which gather data from any source they can, uh, from from uh, online sources as well as um, through public sources, through uh, third-party agreements with um, hotels you stay in, with news sites that you visit, uh, with um, any online shopping that you do. And then the idea is to get that, get that data together and use it to how to, uh, to decide or to determine how best and uh, uh, which is the best time to target individual consumers to make the type of decision that they want you to make. That could be whether to buy a certain pair of shoes, whether to book a holiday, uh, whether to uh, who to vote for or whether or not to vote. And what's interesting about um, the last few years is we've become increasingly aware that um, this data-driven capitalism has also turned into a data-driven politics. Uh, 2016 was the year that that became apparent. Um, obviously, the US presidential elections, uh, the Brexit vote in the UK, and previously to that, the presidential campaign run by uh, President Duterte in the Philippines were the ones that really uh, started um, you know, bringing this issue uh, to our attention, the forefront of our attention. And I think this is a perfect time to ask you, Aim, given it's your area of expertise. Can you tell us a bit more about the way that the um, use of social media and other aspects of the internet have played into elections in Southeast Asia? Sure, I'm always interested in how people are engaged online, especially during election time. So I just want to give you a, a brief, you know, findings of my studies, which looks at uh, social media campaigning in Indonesia, Thailand, the Philippines, and uh, what was my fourth country? Malaysia, sorry, <laughs> uh, in the past, since 2016. And what I find is so fascinating, uh, the, the, first, the first one is that People who are most fully engaged online in election times are actually coming from the bottom, right? And we're talking about societies that are highly digitally divided here, where about half percent, uh, about 50% of people are not online and the other 50 are online. So you imagine that people who are politically active online should be the one that who can afford to have phones and could pay, you know, internet bills. But in fact, it's a lower middle class. Uh, who uh, are actually educated, so they go to university, but they don't make that much money. They, these are the people that probably before social media were not that politically engaged in this way. But now what social media has done is completely remove the cost of engagement completely, right? From, you know, usually we require time, we require resources to go, but now nothing, right? To zero. So they're very highly engaged uh, online. And the second finding is that, and so, so this is just such a fascinating area to look at social media engagement because it is by far the world's most social media active region in the world per capita, 
right, uh, across the board. So the second finding is that information they find on social media actually impacts who they vote for. Uh, and, 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 and the more they increasingly rely on social media for news, the more that affects their decision on one of the most important political exercises you know, in our lives, just voting. And it really matters to regions in Southeast Asia because lots of these governments are actually not that democratic. So these are the two biggest findings I find in terms of the, so, the role of social media in elections in the region. So, Aim, of course, in that situation, the role of fake news becomes really important. Can you tell us a bit more about how this has played out in specific contexts in Southeast Asia? Sure. So in Thailand, uh, Indonesia, and the Philippines, actually, that we find that there's actually a correlation between level of education and level of trust in information they find on Facebook in particular. And I had a chat earlier with Amelia Johns about the Malaysia case. It's not the case for Malaysia. Malaysia is generally more educated. So we did find that people who are less educated are more likely to trust information on, on Facebook. And in the Philippine case, this is very pronounced, especially if you're a supporter of Duterte. Uh, so is this, there seems to be some demographic uh, impact of level education and trust of information. And shareability of information, so they are also more likely to share information. So this may uh, indirectly feed into this whole fake news phenomenon. And but I mean, of course, that's within domestic political spheres. What about internationally? What impact does these sorts of um, phenomena have on international relations? Well, well, I think we, uh, I think Damien referred to that as well. That that's a similar uh, event, to our similar incidents that involve fake news or disinformation. Um, have also been, let's say, part of international relations. And I think the most prominent one is obviously the Russian interference in the US elections, and we've seen others as well. And I think um, um, uh, Ashby published a report not too long ago which found that about in 20% of the cases of elections over the last two years, there have been cases of disinformation from, uh, from foreign actors. Um, so, so that's happening. Um, and, uh, and then, but at the same time, I think we should also realize that it has been happening also before the internet existed. I think that's always good to, to keep in mind as well. We, we are always in the game of trying to influence one another. Mm. Um, it's just a matter of how, how do we make sure that this happens in a responsible way, in a transparent way, um, um, and, and, and that, that's a, that there are certain rules and norms that, um, that, that, that guys how states, state actors, or actors that act on behalf of states, um, act towards one another. But it does definitely have influence. I think um, and I think when we talk about social media, we always as we talk about let's say the echo chamber, right? So if you if you follow certain people on Twitter or Facebook, actually the messages are being echoed. I think we see the same thing in let's say in conversation between states. Um, uh, states that are very active on social media can easily echo positions or opinions from like-minded states. But the reverse works as well that and I think a prominent case is that of um, the Russian Federation, how they kind of have, let's uh, say, uh, uh, launched a, a, a social media war on everyone who was involved in the MH17 investigation, using literally every single social media platform to discredit, let's say, all the, the credit, what we would call the credible institutions that uh, would run the investigation. Uh, so it's it also there, it's an echo chamber. So, Bert, you said before that rules and norms around mm. this are important. Um, what efforts have there been made to put those sorts of rules and norms in place? So, could it simply? What sorts of efforts have been made to put those sorts of rules and norms in place? Uh, lots, and maybe too many. Uh, and that's another, that's another, I think, challenge that's internationally when we talk about governing the internet. It's happening in so many different places that it's very hard to get any oversight. 
but I think the most prominent one is um, is a report of a UN group of governmental experts, which was published in 2015 and uh, subsequently adopted by all 193 member states of the UN General Assembly, which um, which, which recommended 11 norms, and they call it norms of responsible state behavior in cyberspace. So 11 norms which say this is what states should and shouldn't do. Um, examples include um, uh, do never in any kind of your activities uh, infringe on uh, computer emergency response teams. Um, make sure that you nationally, uh, that your critical infrastructure is sufficiently protected so you're not an easy target. Um, it also says that if there is something happening that's outside and countries are asking you for assistance, you should try to be as helpful as possible. It also says you shall prevent your territory to be misused um, for activities in other states. So this is happening. Um, the big challenge now is to kind of make it uh, 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 more common across all countries in the world to actually adopt and implement those. And I think that's the major challenge. And it's too easy for states who are not fully committed to say, oh, this is just a recommendation. Mm -hmm. This is just a, a, a kind of code of, code of conduct. And Damien, do big companies have a role in forming rules and norms around this too? They certainly have a, a, a role in it, but their role to date has been largely to be resisting regulation. Um, uh, Mark Zuckerberg appeared before the US Congress, but famously refused to appear before a uh, United Kingdom um, House committee uh, investigating this and was condemned quite roundly by that committee uh, for you know, demonstrating his contempt for the, the UK um, political system, if you like. And to put that into some kind of context, Rupert Murdoch appeared before that UK committee, but Mark Zuckerberg didn't. So when Rupert Murdoch is, is held up as, as an, an example of a media mogul who's behaving appropriately, um, then you will have to really kind of like wonder, you know. Um, the internet has been developed by people over a few decades who have um, philosophically um, yeah, prized freedom in, in, a, in every way possible. That's bled into a, a commercial environment which has been uh, resistant of any regulation as far as it could. Uh, whenever Facebook, for example, has um, had to endure complaints, um, especially in the court of public opinion about what they've been up to um, or what they've allowed to occur rather on their or been unaware of or haven't acted quickly enough to stop, their standard response is to say, we've employed X thousand more people, we're spending X million more dollars. Um, and that's because they don't want laws and regulations to be able to constrain them. Um, this is this is being debated at the moment in, in um, Congress in the United States. It's a subject of the ACCC report that's come out a few weeks ago here in, in Australia. Um, it seems as though they will not be able to escape regulation for much longer. And, you know, to be fair, Mark Zuckerberg has himself come out more recently and said, look, regulation seems um, inevitable. And uh, he may have even said it. it's, you know, we need to be regulated. So um, we'll, we'll see where that goes. Um, I think, like Bart has mentioned, in terms of international cooperation, I find it very difficult to imagine how um, a country like Australia could regulate Facebook by itself. There's some aspects of consumer protection, um, uh, the Privacy Act, and even elements of the Australian Electoral Act that could be changed to um, more strictly uh, regulate social media. But we 
I mean, I find it really difficult to get past the problem of, you know, where does Facebook exist? Just because we're using it here in Australia, you know, they're based in the United States, where do these laws apply? Um, how do we manage that? I just want to jump in because I have like kind of a crazy example to follow up what you said. So I went to the Twitter Asia Pacific headquarters and I talked to the head of governance there and, and the Facebook uh, colleague was there too. And, and, I, and, and I said, what, what are you doing anything about fake news, right? And he's like, we don't have fake news problem in Twitter. And I said, what? What do you mean? We don't worry about fake news. We worry about virality. And I was thinking about it for a minute and I said, think about it, Twitter, everything just happens so fast, live, it's going live, it's way faster than Facebook, right? So their corporate approach to fake news is that, is it going viral or not? It's not going viral, we don't care because it's already gone, damage is done, it's moved on, it's too fast, right? So it's just like so telling about how they think about fake news, it's like, it's not really about the content or authenticity of it, it's whether or not is going to explode, right? And it also gives you an indication of how like, this is like a corporate answer. And then the other one that was telling also was, we're just waiting to see what Facebook's doing because they have way more money. And we, have, we don't, right? And they're making like, I think $100 million in, in, in profit. So they apparently are too poor. Uh, so they said, well, if Facebook is doing something about it, we will think about it. But if they're not doing anything, we're not doing it. So this question of temporality is really important yeah. then in the Twitter context. Um, something that really strikes me is the when companies have been forced to respond, yeah. and we think of the New Zealand uh, terrorist incident, we think of these big international events that have made companies, whether they want to or not, respond. And given your reflections then on Twitter and Facebook, how strong a week is that a mechanism to actually start exerting some popular or government state control on these big companies? So they decide, pick and choose what issues they really care the most about. So given the debacle after the Cambridge Analytica, they became really, a, a, and you know, uh, inter electoral interference in the US, they became really concerned about elections. So then they start hiring people uh, who they, uh, they form teams where they dispatch to every single national elections that happen to educate the election commission of that country and politicians or political parties how to use Facebook. Right? And so they sort of zero in on focus of things that they, they, they seem like most volatile and probably most likely to have negative impact on their uh, image. And then the rest of the stuff, for example, Myanmar, um, you know, mm. hate speech going on for, for years. NGOs, local NGOs being banging on the door, like, please do something, please do something. And they didn't basically taken them five years to really properly address uh, concerns because it wasn't gathered enough coverage and momentum around the world for them to take a, you know, really take care of it. So issue base. So in this sort of context where we've got states that are working on something done in 2015, basically, mm. and we're now in 2019 and things have moved very fast, we've got companies that only respond in periods of crisis, yeah. what agency do end users have? We have a lot of power, and I really want to argue in this talk that we have the most power of all, right? And, uh, and the power, we, and, and we feel like overwhelmed because we feel like they have all the decision-making power, I think that we, that we users do. Uh, and I wanted to give you, like, in three key ways, right? Um, using, you know, Albert Hirschman's sort of, uh, his book on exit, voice, and loyalty, right? We have the power to exit. 
you don't like it, um, not happy, leave, right? And in fact, um, the computer scientists uh, at the Carnegie Mellon actually uh, show that the, using social media is actually related to mild depression. Just by passively scrolling through Facebook without having to actually do anything, like don't like, don't say anything, you're already mildly depressed. So actually, this could lead to your lifelong happiness, right? So it's like you can just exit, right? Or you can voice, push back, right? Push back, push back. Remember when uh, the Australian government was trying to pass the metadata law, retention law? There was a, a survey, uh, the law we done, uh, that two-thirds of Australians actually think it was fine. It was okay. You know, that the government has the ability to get uh, to, to see your messages. So, you know, and in fact, strangely enough, the groups that are most concerned was the young people, right? People between the age of 18 and 29 in, in their survey sample of, of 1,200 were the most concerned about the passing of, of metadata law in Australia, not the older people, right? So third option, <clears throat> so you can push back, right? Push back, especially if you live not in democracy, right? And where you feel the most, the least powerful. Because right? you might not be able to change the government, but you can signal to them that you're really unhappy. The most recent example, there was an election in Thailand. It was a, not, not really free or fair. 24 hours after the polls, polling station uh, closed, nearly a million people went on change.org to sign a petition to remove everyone from election commission because they're so unhappy with the result. And that polling, like this is like on their own, uh, out of their own will, actually helped with you know, the report that's basically uh, by international observers that this is not a free and fair election. Third option, loyalty. If you want to stay loyal and you know, continue to use the social media, just know what it's there for. It's there to, you know, it's a, it's a business, right? It's, it's, it's basically what it is. And I think we'll come back to that a bit later. But in the meantime, I'd like to dig a bit more into these issues by looking at the um, example of freedom of expression and regulation. Uh, but in many ways, the digital world has allowed us to bypass gatekeepers, as Aime was saying, and empower citizens to express their opinions. And we've seen examples of this in the Arab Spring and in other large social movement responses to oppressive regimes. Could attempts to shut down these pathways undermine these sorts of positive aspects of our digital age? Well, as a semi-diplomat, I have to answer yes and no. Um, <clears throat> I think the Arab Spring, I think, was widely heralded, let's say, globally as, let's say, uh, the success of social media platforms to inspire, let's say, democratic movements. Now, we also know what happened afterwards, and I think only one of the Arab Spring revolutions actually succeeded, uh, and all the others were, were crushed, uh, unfortunately. So, uh, and, and I think the other backlash, if you look at the region here, is particular states in Southeast Asia. Uh, are looking at what happened or, or are, are looking into what happened during the Arab Spring in order to prevent that from happening uh, here. So I think that's, that's, that's something which was great at the time. Um, uh, I think it's, it's currently viewed as, as something very concerning um, in, in states across the region. Now I think, uh, and maybe this touches um, uh, back to the, the previous question as well, I think we also should be very encouraged, encouraged by the fact that actually those who control the internet, those who govern it, those who make it work, are not bound by government affiliations or working for big tech companies or for social media companies. Um, these are folks who kind of have four jobs at the same time, um, but are also working to circumvent new regulation to make sure that if there's an encryption is broken today, that uh, the day after tomorrow there's a new app which is 
battery uh, encrypted uh, and, and kind of ensures this, this uh, integrity and confidentiality of, of the communication again. So I think that's, that's also something to keep in mind. Uh, if you look at the history of the internet, which is kind of, uh, I think for, let's say, normal users, not that long, but, but uh, if you just look at, uh, let's say, what happened in a very short period of time, it's just incredible. And I think that's say the, the, the vitality of, of those who make apps, who, who, who manage, let's say, our ability to, um, uh, to communicate, let's say, through digital means. I think that's fabulous. And I think that, that will always, let's say, thrive um, whatever regulation, whatever uh, uh, um, will will come from from other entities. So on one hand, we have these sort of contests around regulatory space, and on the other hand, we have these dynamic uh, undercurrents, which actually can also help counteract to some extent the role of the very large companies. Um, but it still brings us back to this question of regulation and thinking a bit more about freedom of expression. Damien, I'd really like your perspective on how things like hate speech can be managed while not impinging on freedom of expression. And how different is this in the digital domain and in the offline world? Uh, well, in the online world, it's, it's impossible to get rid of hate speech. Um, <laughs> Uh, even if it were, and I don't think this is possible, even if it were removed from all of the mainstream of very popular social media sites, um, it's a technical and practical impossibility to remove it from the dark web, which is where some of the more nefarious actors online will gather um, and where some of the you know, really nasty stuff happens. So for those of you who don't know what I mean by dark web, there's a whole other um, online space which is uh, not generally accessible through a search engine. You typically need to know the URL, you know, what to plug into your browser to go there. Um, it's very difficult to police. Those who do police it use significant resources to do so and they're doing that because they are tracking terrorists, criminal syndicates and now finally starting to also target um, some right-wing extremists who are gathering in these spaces. The, the, the kind of where it becomes even more important because, you know, it, it's, it's unpoliced in a lot of ways, the lawless, but it's contained. Um, but when, like what happened in Christchurch, when an actor takes this you know, spiteful, uh, hateful, uh, malicious uh, violence and takes it from the dark web and then broadcasts it via Facebook, then there's a whole new level of, um, of types of implications that that has. Now, is it possible for the social media platforms to do a better job? Um, absolutely. And when that question is put to them, they inevitably will come back and say, we are going to do better. Their response tends to be oftentimes technical. We can do better by getting better code, by getting better algorithms, or by employing, employing more people. And if anyone, if you, you want to ruin your day, go and read one of the stories out there about the experience of being someone who has to monitor and moderate online content for, you know, Facebook or someone like that. The stuff that they have to go through and the conditions under which they work under is, is terrible. So there is a tremendous amount of work to be done in this area to, to try to limit hate speech as much as we can. Um, it's obviously become um, one of the more pressing issues um, because of what happened in New Zealand and here in Australia because horribly an Australian was in involved in that, um, but it's been going on um, a while. Um, we're a long way from fixing that one, I think, yeah. 
There's interesting implications also for other elements of the world of work. Uh, universities, for example, the public service, to what extent can employers more generally regulate our freedom of expression in the media? And I mean, we're all aware of the recent High Court ruling here that public servants can be sacked for posting political opinions on social media. So what I'm curious to hear from you all about, uh, what are the implications for our workloads, like work lives of our digital citizenship? Mark, can we start with you? Wow, um, that's a tricky one for me. Um, 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 so I only moved to Australia two years ago, so I don't know. Let's say all about the regulation. Let's say which depends. Let's say the, the culture here. But coming from a European perspective, I was very surprised to learn of that that High Court ruling that uh, as a civil servant, you cannot apparently have a private life where you have private opinions, even if that's if that's politically motivated. Um, so, so I mean, I would be pretty concerned um, that that let's say this this ruling kind of sets a precedent um, for not being able to let's say to communicate in political activities or or expressing political views or academic views, which may be different than um, your view or your work, not your view, your work uh, as a public servant. Um, so I think it's 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 concerning. Um, at the same time, I think I would wonder whether um, this this ruling would be, let's say be sustainable in the long run. Can I add sure. to that on that particular case? I mean, first of all, I I wouldn't want to be a public servant posting anything on social media that was derogatory towards my employer right now. Um, <laughs> But the details are important because in that case, um, and it's been raised in connection or in comparison with the Israel Folau case and uh, his trouble with his employer because of what he posted on social media, and the differences between the two cases are significant. So just on the, the public servants case, um, this a, the legal ruling was based upon um, the fact that she was challenging, uh, she was claiming an implied right to freedom of political speech. She was saying that her contract uh, was void because she should have that implied right. What she didn't say is that she had violated, what she didn't claim, so at best I know, and it's before the courts as well, so I have to be kind of careful here. Um, uh, well, it could be on appeal. Um, she didn't claim that she hadn't violated her employment contract. So if you stay within your you know, the, the terms of your employment contract, you should be able to publish what you like. Now, unfortunately, that means if you're a public servant, you can't criticise your department or your minister. Now, I don't feel very comfortable, you know, knowing, you know, if that's the, the state of play. So you mentioned the Israel Folau case, which I'm sure everyone's familiar with. Yeah. But can you walk us through the comparison a little more? Well, the, 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 the tricky difficulties um, arise out of, and again, I'm kind of like at the edge of my area of expertise because a lot of these are legal difficult uh, legal um, differences. Um, one's a, about a freedom of religious expression. The other one's about freedom of political expression. Um, and they're treated differently under the law. Um, so that's... Uh, one of the differences. Um, the the other thing is, is that, that, and again, the Israel Folau case. There was um, he's arguing that it, you know he should be allowed to do that, even though the terms of his uh, contract um, were such that he had agreed not to do that. Whereas in the other case, um, the claimant was arguing that the terms of the terms of the contract were themselves invalid. So, you know, I, yeah. it's kind of splitting hairs, but it's important when we go forward. And, the, and because I guess the important thing is if the High Court were to have a, a similar case brought before it where another public servant had posted on social media, the response might not be exactly the same. But moving back from those specific cases, 
as most of the people in this room would have relations of employment with somebody or some company or some entity, what are the implications for us more broadly? I'll start and then maybe you guys want to jump on in. But the, the tricky thing is, and this is you know, part of the, the, the digital age, the new media age, is there's this you know, breakdown between private and public lives, right? So us as employer, employees um, and us as private citizens, increasingly that's blurred. That's blurred in many ways by we have to keep on taking you know, phone calls at home from our employer at all times of day or so forth. Or, but... You know, this is another one where we can't have two separate lives online, it seems, um, and that has very troubling ramifications for what it means to be a, a private citizen and to be a private person. And the, the whole of um, kind of individual human rights and the basic idea of dignity is, is deeply enmeshed with the idea of being able to be a private person, and that seems to be... Um, yeah, at risk. Yeah. So that's one aspect of our privacy and our concept of privacy. How else does the digital world impinge on our privacy? And did you want to start this off? I thought I just want to add another dimension because, and I'm picking up on your point about the blur line between private and public life. Because if you are from Southeast Asia or have worked there, you would know that working there requires you to actually use social media for your work all the time, right? In fact, you can't get an interview, you can't get any data from anyone by phoning or emailing them, but if you send them a message on a WhatsApp, you probably can answer. And so there's this whole, like, you actually need to know the social media vernaculars, like how to get access to people, how do people connect, and then they have, you know, in encrypted chat apps, they have work groups, Right, this is where they share lots of information. So it's like a whole other dimension of what it's like to work in a digital society today. And there's no, no more the boundaries between you know what's private, what's public. And it's even more interesting in Southeast Asia because this is the region that has a lot of censorship, right, and an overarching of, of that. But in the work life, it's now it's all sitting on top of each other and social media is a glue, right, between your private and, and your public life. And often those aspects of the dig your digital footprint, and uh, there's no Chinese wall. They're, they're yeah. all mixed together. All your work colleagues also see your family pics. They also see all those sorts yeah. of um, other aspects of your life. So coming back to my question of privacy, where does this leave us? I mean, what are the big things we should be thinking about in terms of privacy in the digital world? Well, that's a very big question. Uh, I think it all started with us being just individually very aware and critical, self-critical about what you give away and for what purpose. I think, uh, I mean, the big trick obviously is to, for ease of convenience, to just, let's say, um, um, provide all your personal details. And I think sometimes we ourselves can be a bit more restrictive in, in, in what we provide. So that's one element, yeah. the data that we provide, often for convenience through the net. What are the other key elements that people think of analysts think of when they, they're trying to um, parse the relationship of people and privacy in the net and institutions, of course. Uh, well, when the data brokers, when they're uh, um, looking for what they can do with our data, they try to identify us in three ways. So one is our identity, so who we are, who I am, my age, um, my background, where I live and those sorts of things. The second one is uh, my behaviour, so what I do online or offline. Um, so that includes online shopping, any website I go to, but also uh, my location at pretty much any time, um, facial recognition um, by various cameras. So that also, you know, that's our behaviour. And then the third thing is, and this is the kind of where it gets a little bit creepy, is they want to, um, to 
know my personality. All right, so they'll know as much as they can um, my preferences. Um, and preferences are about everything from what food I like, but what type of person I am. You know, introverted, extroverted, aggressive, you know, those sorts of things, outgoing, so on and so on, and they'll target me differently based upon those sorts of things. Um, so and they're getting very good at it. Um, so as part of the Cambridge Analytica scandal, a lot of this stuff became, we became aware of the psychological profile that was available online. And, and it, it turns out that um, it doesn't take too many... What they were able to do is match up Facebook activity with a psychological profile. And then they determined that after about 20 likes, if you've liked 20 different things on Facebook, um, Facebook can make uh, predictions about your behaviour as well as a work colleague, uh, a few more um, as, as well as a good friend. And then I forget the numbers exactly, but it was, I think, about 100 or, or so that Facebook would know you as well as your spouse. And yeah. most people have around 20, 250 likes on Facebook. So in other words, um, Facebook and the others who are using this data to predict our behaviour know us not only better than anyone else, they probably know our behaviour, what we are going to do, better than we do. And not, they don't actually care what we think or what we feel. They're just trying to predict how we behave. And because we're often emotional and irrational, and at certain times we are more prone to be emotional and rational, they will know what we're going to do sometimes better than we will. And that's, that's truly terrifying. Very, very scary. But, of course, it has international relations implications too. I mean, you'd all remember when the um, trackers, the fitness trackers of the US soldiers identified bases um, and so on. But can you reflect a bit on that sort of tracking aspect of our, you know, I've got an Apple Watch on, I've got a mobile phone in my bag. How does that play into international relations, do you think? Well, uh, I think international relations uh, has always been, from the very outset, let's say, be about kind of knowing what the others are doing, right? So then we talk about espionage. Um, and the, the World Wide Web is, let's say, the place to be if you want to be a spy or want to spy on others. And, and let's say these kind of apps and all kinds of data that's being transmitted incessantly is, of course, a massive, let's say, wealth of, of let's say, potential information that could be used for uh, for uh, espionage purposes, and it is being used, uh, and we are using it as well. And does that make but, our world more or less stable, do you think? Well, I think, that, again, yes and no. Um, so um, you referred to the Fitbit uh, 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 or, I think, the Strava app, which kind of, um, um, uh, by analyzing the data, you could, you could easily locate where secret military locations where actually are because all the soldiers were, let's say, doing the physical exercise mm -hmm. wearing these two things. Excellent. Um, the same tools are also being used to kind of see what's happening uh, across the world in terms of human rights abuses or uh, uh, to what extent uh, governments are actually living up to their promises. Uh, and just, I mean, I don't want to do self-promotion here, but I mean, uh, the, one of the, the, the gentlemen who, um, who broke the Strava story uh, has been working with us and he just uh, supported the project not, I think, two or three weeks ago, which mapped um, the locations in Rakhine State in northern Myanmar. Uh, and they could just, let's say, by using open source data, the same data that, that let's say, you're just referring to, to kind of um, substantiate whether the Myanmar government was actually living up to its promises. And evidently they weren't. Mm -hmm. So it worked both ways there. And we're not just talking about that really big picture, are we? We're talking also about institutions in our own society, hospitals, mm. uh, security services. There's um, many instances now where these sorts of services have been hacked. Um, so 
Considering those sorts of challenges also, what, what kind of implications do they have for the operation of our economy and society more generally? Can I, can, I, can I just insert two words into the conversation? Sure. Which is trust and confidence. Yeah. And I think that binds all of us together. That's governments, industry, I say IT industry, as well as social media, but also critical infrastructure like hospitals and universities and electricity companies, as well as we as citizens. It's trust and confidence. We have to be able to tr be, trust and be confident that what we do online is, is kind of secure enough. Uh, so I think what, what you're referring to kind of, let's say, uh, the, the, the compromise of hospital records, uh, 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 a compromise of university networks, maybe as such is not a massive deal, but kind of if it adds up, to, to, if it, adds up it, it, it probably impacts our trust and confidence in the system. And I think that's, that will be detrimental to all of us, uh, uh, socially, economically, and politically. Can I add another word? Rights. And I think we don't think about this enough um, digital rights, like what rights do we have as someone online and, and you know, what does it mean to be a digital citizen? Is it different than being a normal citizen? And when you're thinking about your activities more in, in a format of rights, then you're starting to think about, you know, what should be an appropriate behavior or in order for me to maintain my digital rights online, what are some of the uh, things I want to protect? Is it privacy? Is it national security? So then you start thinking much more meaningfully about your engagement online. Mm -hmm. Did you want to add something, David? Uh, no, other than like, hacking's pretty... <laughs> Look, when Bart's talked about cyber warfare, that's probably where we're going to see it, I think, in the first instance. Um, it, it, you know, so there are, there's a lot of investment going on in, in protecting major institutions mm -hmm. and infrastructure uh, networks from hacking. So it's probably the one area where I'm most confident that we are able to make progress because those people who um, are at danger of, in danger of being hacked um, they're act, you know, they kind of know what they need to do in order to prevent that from happening. Whereas the, the other, other way of looking at um, where data can just be used in uh, malicious ways, um, it's not being hacked, it's being sold. Mm. Uh, it's being gathered for the purpose of being mm. sold, and that's a lot harder to mm. stop. But, I mean, that's from the provider's point of view, but the consumer's point of view, it's also yeah. an issue, right? If you think about the... Um, what was that, that called? The health, the one health thing that the government wanted to mm. put oh, up yeah. and how many people were reluctant, including doctors, to sign in because they weren't sure what would happen to their records. Yeah. Uh, so it comes back to your theme of trust, I think. Yeah. And the even if the companies yeah. are onto it or the institutions are onto it, that, that fact that it can undermine our trust as consumers yeah. in the institutions that are there actually to help us. We're running out of time for this part of the evening, so I've got one final question which I'd like all three of you to respond to. I mean, obviously, even the experts in the room have reason to be concerned about their digital footprint and their digital um, citizenship. So finally, in your opinion, Bart, what's the most important thing our audience members can do if they're concerned about their engagement in the digital domain? I think it's maybe, uh, I'll just repeat what I said earlier, I'd be very critical. Um, uh, personally on what you provide and how you interact on a daily basis on the internet. But also uh, be critical about any kind of hype stories in the news. Uh, they may be true, uh, but more often than not, uh, if let's say 25% of the story is true, that's probably more realistic. Uh, that goes, let's say, on all the promises as well as all the dangers. Uh, because, I mean, I, I think if you look at the conversation, we, we tend to be, let's say, overwhelmed by all the risks and threats 
But at the same time, we have kind of survived for, for since the internet was invented, which was in the late 1960s. And what would be your one tip? We have more power than we think, but not individually, actually collectively. Because that's what corporations care about, collectively our actions, and also what our governments care about. <laughs> Mm-hmm. So, what can we do as individuals? Talk about what your concerns are. If you want to use social media for that, that's fine. If not, you can talk offline. Really, actually, fight back anytime you hear the word national security, right? Because um, that's mm. usually a ploy for which they try to reduce our freedom or compromise our privacy in the interest of national security. Really, think about whose security is it for? Is it really for us, or is it for somebody else? Damien, what would you say? Yeah, it's fascinating because one of the things that's uh, um, arisen as a response to these data gathering industries is a kind of like data masking industry. So um, if, if we want to go and have a look at a fascinating account of someone who tried to camouflage themselves online, it was recently published in uh, the Bloomberg magazine last week, and there's a whole lot of things that you can do paid for services that can, they won't make you invisible, but they can camouflage you. So they'll um, disguise your email address, your phone number, you put your chips and your phones in little bags so that the, the signal can't get out. You can even wear masks or special glasses, which will disguise, uh, help um, prevent facial recognition. There's one thing that I'll recommend you not do because it's illegal, but you can get screens which cover your license plate on your car and just reflect <laughs> the light. Um, but of course, you're not allowed to do that. But this, the, the journalist who did this and spent quite a bit of time you know, getting all of these materials together, eventually, like, he'd, he'd done it. And then after a few weeks, he's just like, oh, couldn't be bothered. <laughs> All right? and, and he just went back to, you know, just chucking stuff in Google again. So, so you, there are things you can do as individuals. I would search, if you want to do something that's really interesting, you can find out what data Facebook has on, of, of what some of the data that Facebook has of yours. Uh, you can search and find out some of the data that Google has. Of, I did this recently and discovered that while I had an Android phone for a couple of years in South Korea, they stored every photo that I took on that phone. So I didn't know that they had that, but I should have known better. But so the, the, go and have a look at that. Go and have a look at the Facebook ad library and you'll see what people are advertising on Facebook at any time. Now, that's only available within a seven-day period. That's significantly limited, but it's interesting. But I think like us as individuals, we can do these things, but it's kind of like saying you can solve climate change by recycling. You know, what we need to do is we need to change laws uh, and we need to regulate this industry. So the ACCC reports come out. We've got to see what the government is going to do in response to that. And I think all of us as citizens need to encourage those of our political leaders who are going to take a closer look at this um, and encourage them to work internationally uh, to do so. Well, a lot of homework for us all. Let's thank our speakers. Thanks for listening to the Sydney Ideas podcast series. For more information about our upcoming events or to listen to more podcasts, head to sydney.edu.au forward slash Sydney underscore ideas.